Hi, and welcome to the White Hill podcast series. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here at White Hill, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to one of the podcast messages today. Our prayer is that you would be challenged and inspired to take the next steps in your journey with God as you listen to this message. If you want to keep in touch with more things that are happening at White Hill, head to our website at whitehill.church and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Enjoy this message now. So often you uh, get back to work on a Monday and people ask you, how was your weekend? How was your weekend? But this is one of those times where the weekend was not ordinary. It was not an ordinary weekend. On Friday, Jesus was hanging there on the cross, bloodied, beaten, brutalized, and being crucified. As we went through on Friday, he was hanging there, and while he's hanging there, he utters those three words full of so much meaning. It is finished. And in a loud cry, he gives up his spirit and breathes his last. It was no ordinary Friday. The ground shook. There was an earthquake. Rocks split in half. The curtain in the Jewish temple, which divided the holy place, the most holy place where God was said to dwell, that imagery from the area where the priests were able to go in, the curtain that divided the two split from top to bottom and was torn at that point moment. It was no ordinary weekend, no ordinary Friday. The centurion that was there at the cross who witnessed Jesus say these things, who witnessed Jesus' death, said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It was no ordinary Friday. The Jews, as they came into their special festival, as they came into their special day, didn't want criminals crucified and hanging on crosses and crying out. It was just not a good decoration for their Sabbath, for their Passover. And so they had requested that the criminals be brought to a quick death. And so the Romans that were there at the time would have grabbed their big mallets and they smashed the legs of the criminals which would bring on suffocation and a quick death for those criminals. Because crucifixion could last for three days before exhaustion finally set in and those crucified would die. The centurions as they're there, as they're going around from one criminal to another, they come to greet to Jesus. They can tell Jesus is dead already. But just to be thorough, they take their spear and drive it up into Jesus' side, piercing his heart and releasing the blood and the fluid that was there surrounding the heart. So it looked like blood and water came from Jesus' body. He was dead. They were certain of it. It was no ordinary Friday. 
Because whilst the criminals would usually just be thrown, their bodies thrown aside, there was one that had some interest. And there were two secret disciples or followers of Jesus that were Jews and on their Jewish council. And they went to Pilate to receive special permission to take Jesus' body down, that it would not be cast aside with the criminals, but that he could be given burial rites. And so on that day, they took the cross, they took it down, and as they take it down, they then would have to smash the nails that hold the bodies to remove the body from the cross. Nicodemus, who was one of these Jewish followers, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was the other, took Jesus' body and they placed it in a new tomb and giving it all of the burial rites that were normal Jewish custom, they would have fully cleaned down Jesus' body, wiping off all the dried and congealed blood from his body. And then they wrapped his body in burial cloths. It's said that Joseph of Arimathea actually bought 35 kilos of spices of myrrh, which is like a tree sap used for oils and perfumes of the day, as well as aloes, which we commonly know today as aloe vera. And there with those spices, they would have wrapped Jesus' body in those burial cloths. It was no ordinary Friday. The tomb was sealed. And as Friday's sun set, Saturday began. Now, we usually measure our days by midnight. At midnight, we then flick over our calendars to the next day. But for Jewish and Jewish custom, the second day begins, or the day begins with evening. It begins when the sun sets. And so at creation, when we read about creation, we have the first day. It says there was evening and there was morning the first day. And it uses that pattern all the way through the creation narrative. There was evening and there was morning. Friday's sun had set and this marked the start of the Passover, of the Sabbath. But it was no ordinary Sabbath day. It was the Passover festival and it was the Passover meal. And so at this time, the Jewish families had all gathered together. They had slain their Passover lamb. It had all been prepared the day before. And now they sat down to remember what had been accomplished back in the time of the Exodus. That through the sacrifice of a lamb, they could spread the blood on the doorposts And the angel of death that came through the land as the last plague would pass over their house. It was no ordinary Passover. As they remember a lamb that was slain, there was another who was slain. It was Saturday, the Sabbath. And the disciples at this point had just witnessed Jesus crucified. They were full of fear. 
because they feared that the Jews who had come after Jesus, who had managed to evade Jews on so many occasions through his ministry, that the Jews would now come after them. They were hiding away in a locked room, sharing their grief and their shock at all that had taken place. It was Saturday. And the Jews started to wonder about what had been accomplished. They had crucified Jesus. They had removed the thorn from their side, the competition, as it were, from them. But then they recalled Jesus had mentioned something about rising again. And they wanted to make sure that there was not going to be any false rumours spread around. So they went to Pilate and they arranged for a Roman guard to be placed at the tomb so that no one could steal the body and create a false story. They managed to have a, a Roman seal put on the gravestone and when that was done, anyone that disturbed that seal would do so at punishment of death. And so there, as the guards stand, watch, on this Sabbath day, that Sabbath comes to a close. The sun set, and it was the start of a new day, a Sunday. It was the start of a new week, the start of a new era. But it was no ordinary Sunday. The ladies who had been walking with Jesus for many years, for these years of ministry, had reflected over the Sabbath that they had not put any spices or the usual things at the burial. And so whilst they couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, when the sun went down, they were able to prepare their spices. And then they thought, in the morning we will go down early in the morning and we will somehow get the spices put into the tomb. Perhaps they were very unaware of the tomb being sealed with a Roman seal. And so these ladies come down, they start out before the sun even rises, and they get to the tomb, and at this point there is an earthquake as they're traveling, and an angel breaks the seal, rocks and moves the tombstone away and opens up the tomb now as the ladies start to approach the tomb they come and they see that the rock has been moved but they get to the tomb and they look and there they can see the shelf where Jesus's body was laid but there's something missing whilst the grave clothes are there there's no body. And they fear the worst. Mary takes off straight away and she runs to tell the disciples. She finds Peter and John. And Peter and John, uh, they're alarmed at the thought that someone has stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb. Now, John is a little bit faster. It's like the first race of the century. Uh, John manages to get there to the empty tomb. He gets at the edge and he looks in and he can see that the shelf is empty, that there is just grave clothes there. There's nothing there. But he doesn't go in. He just 
looks, Peter arrives, Peter comes all the way in and Peter's looking through and Jesus is gone and Peter is there and he's perplexed. What has happened? Why are there grave clothes there? Surely if the body had been stolen, why would they leave the clothes there that Jesus was wrapped in, his body? Why would the head covering be there, lying at the edge? It's interesting as we look through this passage in John 21 to 10, that John uses three different words for seeing what had taken place. The first time, when John first arrives, it uses the word blipe, which is, he doesn't go in, he just glances. It's just like an initial look, and that's it. The second time he uses the word see is when Peter arrives. And the word he uses there is a Greek word, theore, which means he's beholding and he's considering what is going on. He's uncertain. If the body had been stolen, why clothes? Why leave the linen? For Peter, he can't understand but he's contemplating and mulling over in his mind what's taking place. And the last word that he uses is this Greek word, Aiden. And that means to perceive its significance. And it's used of John because after Peter runs in and he starts going to the close, John, who's been standing on the outside, follows him in. He goes into the grave and he can see and he's thinking back to what Jesus has said. Now remember, the raising of Lazarus was only uh, a number of days, maybe weeks prior. And John starts connecting the dots of Jesus' ministry and what Jesus has said, that he had to die and then he would rise. And it says here that John not only saw that he perceived He understood the significance. He comprehended. So whilst Peter pondered, John perceived. And it says then that perceiving, he believed. He believed that this was no ordinary Sunday. That something amazing had happened. Now all of us come to the cross, we come to Resurrection Sunday with one of those three levels of seeing. And if I can make it a little clearer, uh, let me share with you uh, one occasion when I went shopping in Ikea and uh, we were looking for a desk for for our kids and uh, we went round Ikea and of course we looked and we glanced at all the different options that were available. They were already made, they were on display, they had little cans of pens and pencils and cardboard computer monitors and stuff on them. And we glanced at them and we looked at them. And eventually we took one home. Now anything that comes from Ikea, of course, is a flat pack. And as I took the flat pack home and I opened up the box... I then 
started to behold attentively and look carefully because there before me were dozens of wooden pieces and hundreds of screws and bolts and nuts. And I sat there and I uh, had to consider what was going on. Firstly, I considered how stupid I was to buy a flat pack um, and how on earth I was going to get this flat pack together with this 40-page manual of how to assemble the hinges and the the runners and the, the drawers and every single piece of this flat pack. Well, several hours later, I had moved from merely observing and pondering the desk to now having completely perceived an understanding. I could understand the significance of the instruction manual and every single piece that came in that flat pack. Thankfully, there weren't any left over. Um, but we've all been there. But it's interesting, I find, that at this point, this is how John describes how people are viewing and looking at the resurrection. Because this weekend of all weekends as we celebrate Easter, there are those in our community and even here amongst us, that look at this cross and this grave setting and they're just perceiving, oh yeah, there's a cross, it's a setting and it doesn't bear any other greater significance. And yet there could also be those amongst us here that look at these elements and are starting to wonder why on earth is it that year after year we continue to look at our cross and we continue to remember at Easter. Was there something really significant that took place 2,000 years ago that drove people to continue to think and to ponder and investigate? And then there are others here who perhaps for many years have believed and understood its significance, the significance of the empty tomb. Well, the empty tomb wasn't just the part that had significance because at this empty tomb, the story continues. And it's Sunday, no ordinary Sunday, and after running around trying to find the disciples to tell them of the empty tomb, Mary returns. She comes back because her mind is still set on who's taken the body. Yes, I've got a couple of angels behind me. (laughs) Our interns are angels, aren't they? (laughs) Um, But Mary is wondering. And she comes back to the tomb. And for the first time, she comes and she's there weeping. And she's looking around the grave area, wondering and trying to find someone who may know where the body has gone. She glances back into the tomb and there to her surprise are two angels sitting on each end of the slab where Jesus' body was laid. And it's curious that that's how John describes it because in the Old Testament, of course, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two carved angels on each side looking in at the mercy seat. 
the place where God was said to dwell. Even in the Holy of Holies, there were supposed to be large angels carved looking in at the ark to symbolize looking in at the presence of God. Now, at the time, Mary didn't understand at the time what was going on. Here were two people suddenly sitting in at the tomb wearing white. Now, our conception of angels, we see different images of angels throughout the Bible, but most times they appeared in human-like appearance. They weren't the winged variety with six wings hovering at all times, but they appeared in human-like appearance, and it's described here that they were just wearing white. And so Mary sees them and she asks them, uh, where is Jesus? Where is the body? And then at that moment, she turns around. I don't know whether she heard something behind her or she just moved on. And someone else is there behind her. And this person behind her says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she thought it was the gardener. Maybe she had so many tears in her eyes. We've all been there at that point where we've been so grieved we can barely see. But at that moment, the one she thought was a gardener calls out her name, Mary. And it's such a reminder of the passages we've looked at at the Good Shepherd who knows his sheep and calls them by name because at that point, Mary recognizes the one who is behind her is not a gardener, but it's Jesus, the risen Jesus. And at that point, she calls out, Rabboni, Rabboni. Now, as the Jewish faith continued, we come to recognize that they recognize three levels of teacher. Uh, the lowest level of teacher they called rab, the mid-level teachers they called rabbis, and this highest level of teacher they called rabboni. That was for the most respected teachers. And it's this truth that she's following up with. Now, if you were writing, doing a creative piece of writing, you were trying to invent something, you would not use a woman as the first witness. Because in the first century, in the ancient world, women were not held in high regard. And their testimony was considered completely untrustworthy. So no Jewish author in their right mind would ever invent a story with a woman as the first witness. But here, John spends all this time speaking of Mary as being the first witness to the resurrection. Of the rabbis, they are quoted as saying, it is better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered by a woman. But Mary as this Christian woman of faith, carries a far more important message than the law. And Mary then takes this message back on Jesus' commission to go and tell the disciples. This was no ordinary Sunday. It's now the evening of that first Sunday. And there 
as the disciples are still fearful in this locked room, Jesus appears in their midst. They see his hands, they see his feet. They see the wound where the spear perforated his side. And they are convinced that Jesus is indeed alive. At this point, Mary's tears had turned to joy. At this point, the ten disciples had moved from fear to courage. And later on, when Thomas is asked to put his fingers in the wounds and his hand in the side, his life is changed from one of doubt to one of assurance. A story is told uh, of a preacher in the last century. His name was Robert Dale. And Robert Dale was one of Great Britain's leading congregational pastors and theologians. He was preparing his Easter service on one particular Sunday. And the realisation that Christ had risen really struck home into his heart. And as he sat there at his desk studying, he said to himself, Christ is alive. And he looked down at his books, alive. He's alive, alive. He paused and he's thinking to himself, can it really be true that Jesus is just as much alive as I am, as each of us are? And he got up from his desk and he started to walk around and pace from side to side. And he started to get excited by this realization that Christ was living. Christ is living. In fact, for the rest of his life and the rest of his ministry, his theme was the living Christ. At every moment he got up, every moment he prayed, it was that Christ was alive. He is no longer dead. He is alive. And it was the theme for his preaching. And from this moment on to the conclusion of his ministry, he got his congregation to sing an Easter Sunday celebration hymn every single Sunday because he said to himself, I want my people to get a hold of this glorious fact that Christ is alive and to rejoice over it. That yes, it is Sunday and you know, this is the day that Christ left the dead and is now living. But I wonder this day, what sort of a faith and a belief, a perception do we have? An historical faith can say Christ lives. But a true faith that accepts it says Christ lives in me. How do you see the resurrection? Do you look with a glance just as if you're window shopping and say Christ is risen and it's as real to you as just saying bananas are $3.99 at Aldi this week? 
That's what it is just to have that glance. It, it bears little significance for your life. Or are you at the stage where you are pondering what all of this means? Where you hear that Jesus did die and then we read these evidences of him appearing to more than 500 people at once. And we hear the truth that Christ is living and we think, what is that going to mean for me? If this is true, then it means far more than just someone died and has risen to life. The consequences of that for our lives are enormous. And that's what the last person who views it views. They grasp the significance of the resurrection because without the resurrection, we can be not assured of any forgiveness. We cannot be assured of our inheritance in glory of life after death. Because if Jesus didn't rise, how can we know that we too will rise? But seeing that Jesus has risen, we are assured that we too will rise. We do not fear death any longer. I wonder if as you come this morning, as you view a, a burial scene, as you view the cross... I wonder if you can hear God calling out your name as Jesus spoke Mary's name to her. If God is calling out your name, if he's calling you by name in these quiet moments, are you responding? For Mary, she grasped the hold of Jesus' feet. She didn't want to let him go. But Jesus had bigger plans both for her life and for the lives of all who put their trust in Jesus. If Jesus is calling out your name this morning and calling you to come to him, will you come? Will you acknowledge the significance of this day for your own life? Or will you just stay window shopping? Bananas, three ninety nine. It is so much more. The cross means forgiveness. It means purpose. It means uh, a life in heaven for all of eternity. And Jesus doesn't want any to miss out, but wants all to come to that point of trusting in him, of believing. Will you believe as John believed, grasping the significance? I'm going to pray now. I would encourage each person this morning, if you are at the first two stages of glancing, uh, to join the Explore course. Be a part of it that Francois is offering. It'll give you a chance to ask questions, to understand these deep truths and to own them for yourself. As we bow our heads, I wonder this morning if anyone can hear Jesus calling to their name. I wonder if the significance of the cross is now a point at which you are ready to accept that Jesus died for you. That he died for the sins of the entire world. That he has opened 
the door to heaven, to being a part of God's family. If that's you this morning, then maybe you want to pray this morning to express that belief and trust in Christ. And it's very easy to do. You just simply say to Jesus, Jesus, I know you died on the cross for my sins. I know you died in my place for my forgiveness. Father, I believe. I believe in Jesus this day. I believe that he rose from the dead. And then just commit yourself to him and just say, I know I've been walking my own way and I want to follow the pathway of Jesus this day. I want the Easter weekend not to be an ordinary weekend any longer. But I want to grasp its significance and know it more. The Bible says for us, if we believe and receive what Jesus has done for us, then we will be forgiven. For all the rest of us, let's pray together and just close off this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because we don't just look with eyes that glance and look at an external picture. 